If you're visiting here with us this morning, we're glad that you're here and, and hope that uh, the things we talk about this morning will be of benefit to you and will help you. I'm, I'm thankful for the privilege of being able to present a portion of God's word this morning. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about some biblical principles concerning marriage. A couple weeks ago, December 27th, my marriage finally turned old enough to get its driver's license. We, uh, we celebrated our 16th anniversary. Um, so we've, we've been through some stuff together. We've been through 16 years of living together, been through four children, losing people, and, and a, lot of, a lot of things that we've gone through. But I want to say this morning, I am not an expert on marriage, but the Bible is. And so I want to look at some biblical principles that teach about marriage and some things that, that we find that are written here. You know, a lot of times we talk about the Bible and how 50 or 60 years ago that this, this book was called the good book. A lot of people referred to it as the good book. And whether people believed in God or not, a lot of times people just viewed it as just being a good document to live by. It's good principles to live by, whether they believed in God or not. And we talk about the fact that to where we're at now, that a lot of that thinking has totally changed. That people don't see this as the good book anymore. They see it as, as in their eyes, they see it as something of hate. And they don't, they don't want anything to do with that. And it's the same thing with marriage. Marriage used to be held up in high esteem. Whether people looked at it from God's perspective or not, they generally looked at it as a good thing. And as we get to where we're at today, it's the same thing as it is with the Bible. People want to do away with the traditional idea of marriage, want to do away with the way God defines marriage, and they want to make it into every crazy thing that they can imagine. And so I just want to focus on what the Bible says about marriage. Marriage is God's means to accomplish a whole bunch of good in the world today. Through the institution of marriage, he, there's all kinds of things that he expects to get done. And so I want to look at some things related to marriage. The first thing I want to notice is the biblical definition of marriage. Now, if we were to go look at laws, look at our laws in America concerning marriage, and go to places in Europe and look at their laws defining what marriage is, you can probably find a whole lot of differences about what, what they believe marriage should be. But I want to notice what the Bible says about what marriage is. So first of all, the first definition I want to look at is in Genesis 2 and verse 4. It says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So notice what it says, that a man comes together with his wife, they leave their families, they become one, and they cleave to each other, and they become one flesh. Now notice that this is Genesis 2 and verse 4. This is nearly the very, very beginning of the Bible. And God defined what marriage is from the very beginning. He told us what he wanted in marriage from the very, very beginning. So you may ask yourself, well, God, God said what marriage was in Genesis 2 verse 4. There's been a lot of different things that have happened over the course of the history of the Bible. We've lived during the patriarchal. We've lived during Moses' law. And now we're living in the Christian age how, how do we know if that, if that definition is still good? Well, in Ephesians 5 and verse 31, we can see that Paul quotes nearly exactly Genesis 2 and verse 24. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And so we see here the definition of what God sees marriage as, a man and a woman leaving their families and then coming together as one flesh. Now, coming together as one flesh could be looked at it in a lot of different ways. It could be looked at it in the physical sense. And just to put your mind at ease, I'm not going to talk about that at all this morning, but it could be seen as that in the physical sense. It can also be seen as coming together as one flesh of just coming together emotionally, coming together spiritually, coming together for the, the same purpose and the same cause to raise a family or to do the good that that family decides to do. They are to come together as one flesh. So the biblical definition of a marriage is a man and a woman coming together, leaving their family. The world today wants to say that it could be two men. It says that it could be two women. The Bible does not say that. The, man said, the Bible says that it is a man and a woman coming together. Diversity in marriage is a good thing. <clears throat> you know, the, the world today wants to talk about being diverse in everything. Everything, we need diversity here, we need diversity there. But then it's funny, you get to marriage and all of a sudden that doesn't matter anymore. It's fine according to the world for there to be some homogenous mixture having two men or two women in a marriage and all of a sudden diversity doesn't matter there anymore diversity in marriage is a good thing i saw this statement as i was uh, putting this lesson together and it says this in order for marriage to be a complete union those entering into the union must engage in a complete spiritual emotional legal and physical union Marriage is not exclusive to a man and woman because society is bigoted or hateful. The truth is that only a man in his, in his distinctiveness and a woman in her distinctiveness can form a complete union. That's the only way that a real union can be made is by the, the, uh, the things that a man can bring and the things that a woman can bring. Only in their distinctiveness can a real, true union be made. And we could think of that again physically or we can think of it um, emotionally, all of the different things. That's the only way a real union can be made is by the two different, uh, two different things that a man and a woman bring. Okay, next thing I want to notice. <clears throat> marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. There's a difference between these two. Marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. In Malachi 2 and verse 14. Now you'll notice there, we're going to look at several verses in Malachi 2 as we, as we go through this morning. And as we look at Malachi, I know that the overall thing that he's teaching in this chapter is about the fact that um, he's talking about God's relationship to Israel and like Israel was the bride and God was the groom and how Israel was going and looking for different grooms and, and breaking their relationship with God. That's the overall thing. But he uses a specific thing to illustrate that point and it's talking specifically about a man being um, unfaithful to his wife. And the overall is true, I, I know, and also I believe whenever he teaches an overall truth by using something specific, I believe that the specific is true also. But I want to notice what he says here in the 14th verse of Malachi 2. He says, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your, uh, the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. She is his wife by covenant, not by contract. 
A contract has a set amount of terms. It says, you do this, I do this, and it just lines out everything. Everybody's, this party does all of these things, this party does all of these things. And if the contract is violated, the offending party is penalized and the contract's done. That's the way a contract works. And in this, I'm not saying contracts are bad. They're good. They're good for, for different purposes, but there is a difference between a contract and a covenant. Now, a covenant, the agreement that is made in a covenant is not thrown out when one member of the union violates the terms of the agreement. It continues on. So even whenever in a covenant, if something goes wrong, it continues. It goes on. So this is like the covenant that God makes with us. And I want to look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was an husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall they say, no more shall every man say his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them uh, to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So God says that the relationship that he's establishing with you and me with us today, he said, I'm not setting it up as a contract. The relationship that he sets up between you and me today is a covenant. And he says that over and over again here. And he uses that language about him being the husband. So he sets up a relationship of where we are in a covenant with him. Now, it's possible for us just to completely turn around and, and walk away from that. And that, that can happen. We can turn away and completely disannul that. But what he's saying is within this relationship, whenever we're together and we're, well, he's always good on his end, but whenever we're trying to keep our end of the bargain, he said, I'm going to make this relationship where every time they do something wrong, it's not just like, okay, it's off, we're done. He said, I will make sure, as he said in the last part of that, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins will I remember no more. So what he's saying is, we're gonna, I'm going to have a relationship with these people. And he said, I know they're going to mess up. God knows that we are going to mess up. And he said, I'm going to make it possible that whenever they do mess up, there, there's a way to reconcile this, that there's a way to make it right. And not just the first time they mess up, see ya, I'm out. So he sets up a covenant with us as his people. And the same thing is true in our marriage. It should be a covenant relationship. In the relationship with God, God forgives us. He's patient with us. He's, he's willing to allow us to grow and to grow into the people that he wants us to be. So just a couple differences between a contract and a covenant. A contract is temporary. It's set up for a certain amount of time, and after that time, then it sunsets, it goes away, and then it's no longer in force. A covenant is permanent. It lasts forever. It doesn't stop. A contract is based off of if-then, like a conditional. If you do this, then I'll do this. And it's just set up on like that. A covenant is based on unconditional promises. It, it, it's based on unconditional promises. It's like what you said in your vows. Whenever you said to your spouse, for richer or for poorer, in health and in sickness, all of those things you said 
to your spouse that I'm going to be with you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stick this out. Regardless if times are good, regardless if times are bad, we're going to stick this out. It's based on unconditional promises. Next thing, a contract is made for somebody to get something. Again, I'm not saying contracts are bad for everything. They're good. Like I write a contract, I sign a contract in my employment. And yeah, I provide services, but in return for my services, I expect to get paid. If all of a sudden they said, you know, would you mind doing this out of the goodness of your heart and not get paid? Uh, sorry, I'm out. Not, not doing that. And that's why you do a contract. It's so that you can get something. In a covenant, it's made to benefit the other person. It's to give the other person security so that they know that, that I, as a human, I'm probably going to mess something up. I am going to mess something up. And I'm more than one thing. I'm going to mess things up. But it gives that person security knowing that, that we're in this relationship and that the other person is there to, to welcome me and to help me to not, uh, to help me not make those same mistakes, but that we're not just going to call it off if I make some mistakes. So remember that marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. <clears throat> okay, this next thing, I know that this is a sensitive subject. And, for, and I, I know that divorce affects a lot of people. I, I understand that. And I know that nobody makes the decision to, to get a divorce lightly. I know nobody does that. And I truly hate it for people that have to go through that. I know it's so difficult. I've seen it in a lot of different areas. I know it's not fun for any single person. And there's, there's all kinds of um, exclusions that I, I could speak about that. And I, I truly do hate it for people who go through that. But we need to realize that divorce is a break from what God, what, for what is best for God's people. He does not like divorce. In Malachi 2 and verse 16, and I believe this is from the New King James Malachi 2 and verse 16 says this, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And again, I, 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 just, want to just, I just want to show my heart that I understand if you've been through that, I know it's not fun and there's, there's all kinds of things that can be said about that, but we don't need to neglect to speak what God says about it that he hates divorce. He does not like it. And I'm, I'm not saying these things to like poke people who have gone through it. I guess I'm saying these things to encourage those who are considering marriage and those maybe who are considering this option to realize that this is not what God wants for his people. You know, whenever I was a little kid, I was always taught not to promise for anything. And I, and I guess mom and dad got that from Matthew 5 and verse 34 where it says to not swear by anything. And, and if I said, oh, I promise, mom would always say, you don't say I promise. And, I, and I, she probably got it from that. And the reason we say not to do that is because people promise for like trivial things and then we end up breaking those. And so it, it ends up like making your word not worth as much. So I was always told not to promise. But when you say your vows to somebody, you are saying, I promise. You need to realize when you say, I promise, that you are making that vow before God Almighty. You're making that vow before God Almighty. You're making it before the people that are there to witness it. If you're going to make that promise, 
You better keep that promise. And if you're going to have to keep that promise, you need to make sure that the person that you're going to get married to is somebody that you can keep that promise with. If you're considering marriage, if you're thinking about getting married to somebody, and if the, in the back of your mind you're not totally sure about it, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, well, we're going to make a go of this, but if, if, if it doesn't work, then at least divorce is an option. This is not like some other countries in the world where you couldn't do that. If you've got that thought in the back of your mind, stop. You need to stop thinking about getting married to that person honestly. If divorce is an option in your mind, you have to stop because it will not lead to a good place. You can't have that as an option. You cannot go in making the promise that I'll be with you till death to us part, but then think in the back of your mind, well, if things don't work, then we can just call it off. If you have that in the back of your mind, you need to stop. Okay, next thing. <clears throat> the Bible has a lot to say to men in marriage. You know, a lot of times people, as they evaluate the Bible and they, they talk about the Bible today, they say, well, the Bible is just, it just, it hates women, that it's always against women. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I guarantee you that's not true. There are plenty of verses where the Bible is very stern with husbands. And in Malachi 2, verses 13 through 15 here, it is very, very stern. And so I want to look at these verses here and see what it says about this. I should have split that up, but... Okay, Malachi 2, verses 13 through 15. He says, and this is the second thing you do. So again, in, in this, what he's talking about is he's saying that these people are coming and they're trying to um, bring their service and their worship to God. And he says that God is not accepting their worship. And he's already told about them one reason why he's not accepting their worship. Now he said, this is the second thing. This is the second reason why God is not accepting the, the uh, worship from these, these people of Israel. So this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. So he says that these, these people, they come to the altar of God, and he says that they come and they, they cry, they're crying, and their tears are falling, all these crocodile tears, and they're, they're trying to act like they're so sad about what's going on. But God says, you're just making a show of this. You're coming here and you're weeping, acting like you're sad about what's going on. But he said, what you're actually doing, he said, is keeping me from accepting your worship. And he says, the reason for it is, is he said that as husband, there's been husbands, he said, that are dealing with the wife of your youth treacherously. Continuing on, he says this, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did not he make them one having a remnant of the spirit and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and not, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. So he says, you guys, you're coming here, you're crying, making a big show of this. But he said, I'm not receiving it because you are not doing what you're supposed to. He said, you have the wife of your youth. She is like your companion. She is trusting in you. She's put her, her trust in you. And what have you done? You're dealing treacherously with her. You're being adulterous. You're turning away from her. You're not being one with her like you should be. 
I don't know about you, but whenever I read that, I don't see the, the Bible as just letting the men go and just dealing hard with the women. In fact, I don't know where he talks that sternly to women. He is getting on to the men very, very sternly here. And I, we need to realize that. And I know that this is under the Old Testament, but the, the same admonition applies today that as husbands, we need to make sure that we, we, we take our spouse, we take this woman who's our companion. She trusts in us. We need to make sure that we're doing what we can to honor that union and that we don't deal treacherously with her. Okay, so just some things I just looked up. Um, some things as a husband relates to his wife. And I don't have these verses on there, but um, I want to look through here and we're going to spend uh, some amount in, of time in Ephesians chapter five, but I'm going to turn over there real quick. Ephesians five and verse 25. And it says, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. You know, for... For most men, it's harder for us to show our emotions. Now, I know that's being stereotypical, and, and for some guys, it's not that way. But in general, in general, it's harder for men to show their emotion towards their wife. Women, that just comes more natural to them. And again, I know that's, that's an overarching statement, and it doesn't apply everywhere. But in general, that's the way it is. So God tells us to love our wives. And that means thinking how we can relate to them emotionally and, and all of those types of things. And we're going to talk more about the true definition of love later. But he tells us as husbands to love our wives. In Colossians 3 and verse 19, um, I, I think that phrase is from the New King James. It says to not be harsh with them. In the King James, it says to not be bitter against them. As husbands, again, and this, again, stereotypical thing, but as men, it's usually harder for us to think about how can I be soft in this instead of just being harsh and just going in, you no, know, just, just being difficult in the situation? But he tells us as husbands to not be bitter, to not be harsh. Think, okay, if I've got to deal with something, how can, I, how can I make this smooth? How can I give a soft answer in this place? Another thing that it tells us as husbands in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 it says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. So he tells us as, as husbands to live with our wives in understanding, in knowledge. And so what that means is sometimes as, as husbands, sometimes we don't know exactly what, what's going on. And he said, don't just look over that and just say, I, I don't care what's going on here. This, this is the way it's got to be. He said, Put some brain resources into figuring out why things are going the way they're going. Do it according to knowledge. Don't just, just say something. You need to think about what's going on. Try to figure out the best way to deal with something and do that according to knowledge. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, it's not necessarily husbands to women, but it is to fathers, and it says to provide for our families. That's a responsibility that's given to us as husbands and as fathers. In Matthew 19 and verse 5, it says that the man is to cleave to his wife. That means that we hold on it, we hang on to her. And so that means that we don't go looking for support in other areas where our wife can offer that support. We need to trust in her, cleave to her, hang on to her and hold on to her. And think about how can I, how can I spend time with my wife? How can I be with my, my wife? How can I just want to be with her and to cleave to her. 
You know, as a husband, usually when I think things aren't going right, it's eventually I realize I'm not pulling my weight. That's usually what things boil down to. I realize that, man, just things are, this just not, this is frustrating. And most of the time, it's because I'm not doing my job. And as soon as I realize I'm supposed to be doing this, I'm supposed to be doing this, or maybe sometimes it's just one thing, I just fix this, and it's like, everything smooths out. It's like, ah, it wasn't her, it was me. It was my fault. And we need to, we need to realize that and, and think of that. Okay, to the wives. <clears throat> so the first thing to the wives is the scripture says to submit to your husbands in the Lord. And I know that this is a, definitely a saying, and this is not just saying, it's a commandment that is hard for the world to receive. It says that in Ephesians 5 and verse 22. I want to talk about this idea for just a little bit, submitting to your husband. Submission does not mean that you're giving somebody the authority to dominate you. It's not like you're giving somebody the authority to become your, your slave master. Like whenever you submit, you are making yourself the slave and this person your slave master. That's not what submission means. Submission does not mean inequality. If you think about it, Philippians 2 and verse 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, as w- and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you see, submission does not mean inequality. Jesus himself submitted himself to the will of the Father. But there it says in verse 6 that he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was equal to God, but he submitted himself to God. So submission does not mean inequality. The other thing is that submission, the commandment to submit is given to the wife. It's not given to the husband. The commandment to submit is given to the wife, not to the husband. So it's not like it's a commandment to the husband to force his wife to submit. The power of that decision is with her. She gets to decide if she wants to submit or not. So it's not like the man is saying, you will submit. It's her decision to do that. So with that being said, she needs to make sure that the man she is marrying is of good enough character and of godly character that she can submit to him. The power to submit is with the woman. It's not with the man. And we always want to look at it as as being something bad, but it's her decision. She gets to decide to do that. Submission does not mean that the woman does not have a say-so. It would be foolish for me to just make make a decision without consulting my wife. That would be absolutely foolish. If you think about it like this, let's say you're, you're in the car, you're driving down the road. There's several people in the car. Somebody in the back says, let's go this way. Another person in the back says, let's go this way. The person in the, in the front passenger seat let's, says, let's go this way. But you know what? There has to be somebody sitting behind the wheel. The person behind the wheel is the person who eventually has to make the decision, which way do I turn the wheel here? Somebody's got to make that decision. Somebody has to make that decision. What if, the, what if the driver's turning and all of a sudden the passenger reaches over and, nope, we're turning this way. That would be a bad, bad thing, right? That'd be a bad thing. You know, where there's, whenever there's a fork in the road, somebody's got to decide which way to go. The, every, every person has their opinion about something. And in marriage, 
We come together as one, but we understand that we both have different ways of thinking. Absolutely. Chas likes to go to bed early. I like to go to bed late. And we can go on and on with that. We have different ways of thinking. And so, some, and so sometimes there's a fork in the road. And it's like either we go this way or we go this way. And it's like, okay, our family's got to go one way or the other. Somebody's got to make the decision. Because we, we're at a difference of opinion here. So which way are we going to go? It eventually comes down to the fact that one person has to make that decision. It's just natural. One person finally has to make that decision. And so the person that God set up to do that is that the husband would do that. Now, a lot of times, especially as we live together longer and as we think more and more alike, a lot of times those decisions, those hard decisions that we have to make just end up becoming a mutual decision. And nobody has to submit. We just decide together we're going to go this way. And a lot of times it just ends up being we're on the same page and it just, it just goes this way. And of course, what I'm talking about here is not whether we're going to have chicken soup or steak for supper tonight. That, that, that's not into this. I'm talking about difficult decisions that have to be made. And in that situation where you come to that fork in the road of a difficult decision, God said, the person I want to make that decision is, is the husband. Another thing to the wife is that it tells her to love her husband. In Titus 2 and verse 4 there, um, what, the, what the verse is talking about there is it says that the older women should teach the younger women to love their husbands. And so um, the Bible does say that. I've, I've heard it said before that nowhere does that say that. It does right there, Titus 2 and verse 4. It tells the older women to teach the young women to love their husbands. And so obviously that's something that women in some sense do have to learn how to do. And then that uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 33 says that a woman is to respect her husband. Okay, <clears throat> Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 is probably the best verses, some of the best verses in the Bible that we can read about biblical marriage. And I have those up here, but it's such a long passage and it's like four different slides. Um, if everybody would get their Bibles out, I'd like for us to read this Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 together from our Bibles. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 scripture says this actually let's start in verse 21 it says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So let me stop there. We've already talked about some of these ideas, but it says to the husbands that we are to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. That is our command. That is our duty as husbands is to love our wives the way Jesus loves the church. Jesus loved the church in a sacrificial way. He gave up his life so that we could be members of this, of this institution of the church. He gave himself sacrificially and the exact same thing applies to us as husbands that we are to give ourselves sacrificially. And sometimes whenever Whenever we don't, we don't want to do something, whenever something seems difficult, 
we are called to do that anyways, that we are called to do what's difficult and make sure that we provide for our wives and that we do everything we can to please our wife and to, to make it as easy for her as possible and to love her like Jesus loves the church. In verse 27, he says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband." As husbands, as wives, as people, as spouses in a marriage, we need to pray that we can fulfill what the scripture says in Ephesians 5. This needs to be our prayer. This needs to be what we think about is doing what the scripture says in those verses. Okay. <clears throat> Next thing I want to talk about for a little bit is us. We, in our marriages, we need to learn to be selfless and to, to realize that we have a, a duty to our spouse. In Matthew 23, 11 through 12, and I'll get to go in here, but it says, Matthew 23, 11 through 12, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, we cannot act like we're the most important spouse in our marriage. We have to realize and know that each person is as valuable as the other. The man is not more valuable. The woman is not more valuable. Both are necessary and we need to realize that in our marriage we need to learn to do what Jesus said and learn to become a servant to serve our spouse and to do do what helps them next thing marriage is about working love not talking love in first John 3 and verse 18 it says my little children let us not love in word neither in tongue but in deed and in truth it's easy to say I love you. Or I guess for some, some people, I know it's not easy to say that, but um, that, if anything, that is the easier thing to do is to say I love you. That's easy. That doesn't require any commitment. It doesn't, it doesn't require, it just doesn't require anything to say that. You know, whenever two kids start dating, you know, they may not know how to, whatever, you know, they may not know how that works. They may start immediately saying they, that they love each other. What, I mean, do they, do they really? I mean, when you say that, it doesn't really, it, it can be good, but it doesn't mean anything. It's whenever we do it in deed and in truth. That's whenever love really demonstrates itself. That's whenever we really show that we're committed to this covenant, that we're committed to this relationship. It's whenever we do it in deed and in truth. It's working. It's doing like what the Bible teaches. Like faith without works is dead. And whenever we don't, um, whenever we don't show our love, to somebody by the works that we do for that relationship, love is dead. Whether we're saying I love you or not, love is dead if we're not working towards that. Okay, I want to speak for a little bit to, to those who have young, very young children right now. And I'm just barely out of that. Elijah's going to turn seven in, um, in April. So it's not like I've, I'm some old guy here teaching, okay? I just barely got out of this, but I am close enough to it that I do remember some, some things that are difficult. Marriage and family can make things more difficult, and that's just the fact of the matter. 
Okay, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35. He says this, but I, would, I want you to be without care. And I believe this is from the New King James. He says, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, well, if, if you stay unmarried, like totally unmarried, he said, you can, just, you can just go full force. You can just totally devote yourself to serving the Lord. And he says, if you do get married, and that's a good thing, that's an absolutely good thing. He says, if you do get married, he said that your attention is going to be divided. It's just the natural order of things. That's what he's saying. It's gonna be like that. If you get married, he said, you're gonna, you're gonna be concerned about the things of this world, how you can please your wife. And then he flips around in verse 34 and he says basically the exact same thing to the wife. He says, there's a difference between a virgin, uh, wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So what he's saying is whenever, whenever you get married and especially whenever you have little kids, your attention is going to be divided. And the reason I wanted to say that is to realize and I, I'm talking about the assembly, but this, this applies in general everywhere, that it's difficult to bring little ones to the assembly. It truly is, and I remember that, especially whenever all of my kids were little and they were crawling all over us and everything. I remember being discouraged because like I go to the assembly and I can't pay attention. It's just like kids crawling over me. I just, I can't focus my mind. But what I want to say is don't be overwhelmed and realize that God knows that. He put it in the scriptures. He knows that it's difficult whenever you have little ones. Okay, whenever you're having to deal with things of the family. So don't be overwhelmed by that. We've all, we've all been there, and I'm not just talking about with kids, but just the, the things that you have to do in marriage. It can be hard. Realize that bringing your little ones into the assembly is exactly what God wants, and it's exactly what we all want. Sometimes people think, oh, how do, they, how do they view my kids crawling all over the place and, and whining and all that kind of stuff? We love it. Now, whenever they're my own kids, obviously that's a different story, and especially whenever I'm preaching and they were screaming my way, that's just a hole right through my brain. But anybody else's kids, every single person here loves it. We love it. It's the sound of a new generation that's being taught about godly things. We love it. And, and no, that's the truth. And know that God knows that it's more difficult for you. Now, the, th the thing I want to say about that is this. Don't take that as an excuse, though. Don't say, well, I, God knows that, and I'm just going to slack off here. Don't do that. But God knows that it is more difficult whenever you have the little ones to take care of. Marriage is honorable. Regardless of how the world views it, God sees it as a high and lofty thing. In Hebrews 13 and verse 4, the scripture says marriage is honorable in all things. Uh, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge the love we have for each other in marriage causes us to look to help and to support each other in 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 8 it says this love suffers long and is kind love does not envy love does not parade itself is not puffed up does not behave rudely does not seek its own is not provoked thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth Bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things, love never fails. And again, 
just like Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 13 is something that we need to pray that we can honor what God says in those verses. In our, in our marriage relationship as husbands and wives, we need to learn to speak words that build each other up, that give life. We'll look at two verses real quick about that. In Ephesians 4 and verse 29, it says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So just in general, the scripture says that when we talk to people, we need to make sure that we speak words that edify, that build up. A lot of times we get into our relationships and we become comfortable with each other and then we just start talking about each other's failures and then we, that's all we talk about. That's all we say is about what they're doing wrong and we just give critical words instead of words that, that build up. In Proverbs 18 and verse 24, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. We have the ability to speak words of death, honestly, and we have the ability to speak words of life. And in our relationship, with our covenant relationship with our spouse, we need to speak words of life and to think about how can I speak words that are gonna build up? You know, another thing that I think is important in our marriages is that we learn to compromise. In Ephesians, uh, Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9, this is the verse that's talking about you know, about that, and it says that two are better than one. You know, two being better than one is not just a physical thing. When two are joined, they become better. When two join their thinking, they become better. If we just stubbornly hang on to every little detail without considering what the other has to say about it, we don't believe in this principle. We just believe, we believe that one is better than two. We need to, to learn to compromise and to learn that, you know, I've grown up without this person and I've got my mind set on this and this is the way it is and just, pff, that's all I'm gonna think about. We need to learn to realize that two are better than one and bring those two thinkings together. And in doing that, we've got to compromise sometimes. Of course, I don't ever mean compromising on truth and you understand what I mean. It's learning to see it from our spouse's perspective and see, is there, is there validity there? Is that better than the way that I think about this? And if it is, adopt that person's view of that or take some mixture of those two. But we, in our relationship, need to learn to compromise and to, to think about the way the other person would deal with this. Biblical marriage is fun. The last 16 years has been a fun ride. Of course, there's been ups, there's been plenty of downs, but overall, I know everybody in here can say the same thing. When we live it according to God's um, commandments, the way that he's prescribed for it, it is fun. We must learn to become selfless in our relationship and in our covenant relationship. It's not 50-50, it's 100-100. We're both giving each other 100%. Biblical marriage honors God. Biblical marriage glorifies God. When people see us living the way God prescribes us to live in our marriage, it glorifies him. Because two people naturally living together won't live the way in which they live whenever they're living by God's commandments. And it's just like everything else. When people see us living by that, they're gonna say, how do you do that? And you're gonna say, we, we had nothing to do with this. We, it's all God. He's taught us and through his scriptures, through other people who have studied his scriptures and imparted that knowledge to us, we're able to live this way. Biblical marriage glorifies God. It shows that we're submitting to his will and his ways. The world is ready to be done with the idea of marriage, but marriage is God's means to accomplish 
a whole bunch of good in this world today. I pray that we all in our covenant relationship with our spouse can live the way God wants us to and that we can live by the principles that he lays out. If you're here this morning and you've been taught the gospel, you've, you've learned about what it, what it takes to become a Christian and you're ready to, to do that and you're ready to, to repent and turn from your old lifestyle, you're ready to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're ready to, to calm, bring that to a culmination of being baptized into Jesus, if you're here and you want to do that this morning or if you're here and you need the prayers from the saints of this congregation to build you up for whatever reason, we'd ask one of either class to come to the front as we stand and sing.